Hello, it's Monday 12th of June. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will be discussing all things hotels and hospitality in Indonesia with our guest, Ross Woods. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we're delighted to welcome Jakarta-based Ross Woods to discuss the changing landscape for hotels and hospitality investors across Indonesia. Ross is an experienced hotel investment and strategy consultant and spends much of his time traveling across Southeast Asia's largest nation on client and research projects. He also publishes some brilliant graphics and tables about Indonesia's hospitality and tourism sectors on LinkedIn. Would recommend uh, tapping into those at some point. So, Ross, thanks for coming on to the Southeast Asia Travel Show. How are you doing today and where are you right now? Thank you very much, Gary, Hannah. It's great to be with you, and uh, I look forward to our uh, conversation uh, this morning. Uh, I'm currently uh, based in Jakarta. I've been here for um, about three years, off and on with the uh, with the pandemic, but uh, that's where I am today. I'm, I'm in my apartment on the 25th floor, overlooking uh, uh, Mega Kunigan, downtown uh, Jakarta. I know exactly where you are. So there's plenty to talk about, Ross, but let's firstly just briefly talk about your career because it's been pretty varied. You've you've worked in Australia, the US and Indonesia. Um, How did you first get into the hotel and hospitality industry? Gee, it's a a long story, Gary, but I'm going to keep it short. I um, I first worked for the Queensland Tourist and Travel Corporation, which was a statutory authority set up in Queensland to... Uh, develop uh, and promote tourism. And I was the first research and development director of that organisation. And in those days, there was, apart from the Great Barrier Reef and uh, a few island resorts, tourism really wasn't a major industry in in Queensland. So I I, uh, assisted the corporation in developing a strategic plan. We invited Boeing Corporation uh, to put out a a report, the Boeing report, which looked at the potential for tourism and uh, hotel resort development. And I guess it was through those early days uh, working in that uh, statutory authority that gave me a sufficient background and experience to set up my own consultancy. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, KPMG, Pete Marwick Mitchell, a big accounting firm, approached me and I established their consulting practice in Queensland. And then shortly thereafter, about two years after, I joined Horworth uh, and I was a partner with Horworth for, for many, many years. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you you were, you were right back as you know like you were saying you know tourism was starting to become this 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 force um, in Queensland. Yes, well, you know, I, I I was involved in a lot of the feasibility studies for new projects, a lot of big hotels, big resorts, uh, mixed use developments, uh, casinos, and theme parks. So I had a uh, you know, a broad, uh, a broad experience in sort of market studies and financial projections, and and then looking at the uh, the capital structures for a lot of tourism hospitality. And it was in that capacity uh, uh, when I was with Horworth, I was a partner with Horworth for about 10, 12 years, and then I was uh, I was headhunted by uh, Prudential real estate investors who were based just outside of New York to to um, to head up and oversee the hotel investments in North America. And um, I guess the re- one of the reasons why I was headhunted because I, I used to do a lot of work in, in risk analysis, uh, simulation. It sounds very complicated, but we're attempting to quantify the risks associated with hotels and resorts. So that, that's uh, really the, the background. And, uh, you know, for 25 odd years, I lived in 
just outside of New York, and and more recent years I've um, relocated to uh, to Indonesia. So you are also an adjunct professor at New York University. Um, tell us more about that. Yes, well, that was one of the great highlights of my life. Uh, New York University is the largest private university in the world. And uh, about 15, 18 years ago, I, I, I used to put out a quarterly newsletter on, on hotel investments in North America. And uh, they have a, um, a faculty, uh, a, a school of sports management, as well as uh, tourism and hospitality. And they approached me and said, look, we'd be very interested in, in you We're providing uh, a number of courses for undergraduates initially uh, in statistical methods. So my first course uh, in these two schools was uh, in statistical methods, and then I was invited to, to um, give other, other lectures. And so I was with the uh, NYU for about 15, 16, 17 years, I guess, since about 2007, 2008. And it was just a, a wonderful experience, met a lot of wonderful people uh, from all over the world. It, it, because it's so close to Wall Street, I had access to you know, some incredible um, people who, who did some very clever you know, financial structuring and econometric forecasting in, in relation to the hospitality industry, particularly in North America. But, uh, and it was in that capacity uh, that, that uh, you know, I was exposed to, to so much uh, in North America. And so what brought you to Indonesia, Ross? Well, I'm, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here, Gary. I first, my first trip to Indonesia, now I'm giving away my age, was in 1972. And I, I lived at Kuta Beach, in 1972 for three months, I was a student at university in Australia and Kuta was a, a, a dirt road. It wasn't uh, no asphalt, no bitumen, but it was a dirt road with potholes, three or four lostmen, three or four hotel, uh, restaurants, Bimo Corner and Rice Fields to Denpasar. So that was my first trip uh, way back in 1972. And, and uh, you know, I, I've been back on many occasions uh, undertaking assignments uh, during the, you know, the 1980s, 1990s. And then it wasn't until about three or four years ago that I had a, um, a vulture fund, private equity group based in, in New York, who said, look, there was a, some distressed hotels in Indonesia. Would I come out and check them out and pro- provide some recommendations on whether or not they, uh, they were worthwhile investments? So I came here in 2017. And it had been probably 10 or 15 years since I'd been here. And I was just astounded at the growth and the development in, um, in Indonesia in, in that intervening period. And, and I just thought um, this was an exciting place to relocate. And uh, so I, I, I established a practice uh, here in early 2020. So that's the, the reason for my, um, my interest in Indonesia goes a long way, way back. <laughs> Got it, um, and uh, I won't tell you how uh, how old I was in uh, 1972, or uh, whether I even existed. Um, so... <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing, Hannah, is that, that when I mention that to people, in, in those days there were 42,000 foreigners that were in Bali in 1972, according to the official statistics. And of course, in 2019, I think there were 6.2 million visitors. So, you know, I, I, I've seen it from its, uh, its very early, early days through to, uh, you know, more recent times and uh, just an amazing transformation. Fascinating. Um, so you last spoke and came on the show about a year ago, and that was as Indonesia, Southeast Asia was kind of emerging from these dislocations caused by COVID-19 and governmental responses to the pandemic. 
Um, and so back then, um, you were pretty optimistic about the overall outlook for Indonesia's hospitality sector. So how would you look back across the last 12 months? Has anything stood out or surprised you? Well, yes, um, a number of things have, have um, surprised, not surprised me, but, but, but certainly, uh, you know, I, I'm encouraged by uh, the growth of domestic tourism. And I guess for some time we've paid lip service to the domestic market. Now, I know a lot of hotel operators uh, clearly take this market very seriously. But, but um, you know, I think the, the Indonesian government did a, a reasonably good job in terms of uh, COVID and some of the lockdowns and some of the restrictions. Uh, but, but underneath, the, during this period, the domestic market was still still growing and, and still uh, patronising hotels in many locations. And so we look back now in the, the early parts of 2023 and, and really it's it's the domestic market that's really underpinned uh, the growth of tourism over this, this period. And now I appreciate that many hotels and regions are still suffering, but if it wasn't for the, the size and the growth and the buoyancy of the, of the domestic market, then, you know, a lot of, a lot of properties would be in more serious um, you know, facing more serious issues today than, than uh, they are. That's interesting to hear, Ross. And so as you look across, it's such a huge country, Indonesia. I think it's something that the rest of the world doesn't quite sometimes appreciate. And which cities, which areas of Indonesia have you seen are recovering faster in terms of hotel occupancy and which ones are a little bit slower? Yeah, the, well, the interesting thing, if I just start by looking at the um, across the country, uh, it's uh, in terms of um, star ratings for initially before uh, individual uh, regencies or cities or provinces. But the interesting thing is the four-star market is a juggernaut uh, and, and, and um, it's had the, uh, the swifter recovery than the five or three-star. Um, there's not much in it, uh, but, but if you look at uh, the four-star market uh, over, the, over the last 12 months, uh, ending April 2023, an occupancy of about 53% compared to about 39% uh, the previous 12 months. So the four-star market has done well, the five-star market has, has bounced back, and then the three, two, one. Now, in terms of locations, um, Bali it has been the best-performing province in the country um, in, terms of, in terms of not absolute occupancies, but in terms of um, where they were the, the, the previous 12 months. So uh, if you look at uh, the last 12 months, uh, occupancy is about 43% compared to 16% in the previous 12 months. So Bali has, has seen a pretty significant uh, ramp up, uh, a long way to go, of course, but, but certainly uh, year to date. Um, the, the second major region would be Capria, um, Bantam, Bintan Island, uh, Tangent Penang. And this, is once again, is a, a sort of a leisure holiday resort market, obviously uh, underpinned... Uh, in the main by Singapore and other parts of Asia. And Job Jakarta is probably the third best performing market uh, in the country. And um, then we look at central Java and uh, a province in, in Sumatra, Jambi. Um, so they're the top sort of five, uh, five markets. And the interesting thing, when I look at uh, the regional spreads, it's really Java. Java is, is uh, Job Jakarta, West Java, Central Java, East Java. And band 10 are all in the top nine provinces in terms of performance so uh, and a lot of that's underwritten by obviously manufacturing and uh, and business and and jakarta 
while it's the second largest hotel market in the country, is sort of ranked 16th. So um, that's that's to give you a, a bit of a flavour for um, uh, some of the regions that are doing well. And of course, if we look at uh, some of the the, um, the individual cities, Solo and Semarang, Surabaya, um, Bandung, Bogor, just outside of Jakarta here, are all done, done reasonably well as well. As well. Yeah, that's fascinating. That is, uh, these, like you say, is these different pockets, and you know, definitely, you know, as I think Gary and I have always been saying domestic tourism is the one to focus on. And Indonesia, with its huge domestic market, is it's a no-brainer really for them, right, to, to, to focus on that. Yes, yes. Well, it, it's, I, I, you know, it's it's got some underlying. I mean, three, three, uh, two hundred seventy million people. Clearly, uh, there's an emerging middle class. Uh, we've got GDP clipping along at uh, better than five percent. And and, uh, and, it, and it's got a lot of, uh, I mean, I think there's some major weaknesses in terms of the tourism industry and, and uh, uh, there's some you know, serious competition from other major destinations in, in Southeast Asia, which I don't think are being f- fully appreciated. But, uh, but, uh, but in terms of um, a domestic market, not only in terms of leisure, but corporate and business and mice, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very... And, and I, I think what COVID has done is forced a lot of hotel operators, both the international chains as well as uh, domestic chains here in Indonesia, to, to, to take more seriously the domestic market. I mean, clearly the, the international market is the lucrative market, uh, high spending international visitors, um, less so in the domestic market. But, but I think one of the things that will come out of this, uh, out of COVID and the, and the pandemic is, is uh, a... a um, a refocusing or a new focusing on on the domestic market. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we we keep saying in the tourism industry and using you know 2019 as this typical benchmark by the industry to to gauge that kind of tourism recovery. But is that necessarily the right one, the best one to use when it comes to Indonesia, for example? Well, I guess Hannah, it, it, it's a convenient benchmark, and clearly every hotel, every region needs benchmarks by which they're looking at the extent to which they can improve and should improve or, or have underperformed. And so 2019 is convenient. You know, it's the, it's the most recent, I was going to say normal year. Many would argue it wasn't a normal year, but it was a year in which there weren't, you know, major uh, calamities like pandemics uh, and volcanoes and things of that nature taking place. Um, but the interesting thing, if I, uh, people use benchmarks for different purposes uh, clearly to develop uh, budgets going forward. But I think there's been a fundamental re- reset in terms of a lot of the operating rationales for hotels. And so choosing a benchmark is, is more challenging than, uh, than it has been in the past. And the interesting thing, I just did some analysis yesterday, that um, if we look at 2019... Uh, only 10 provinces out of the 34 in Indonesia, or 29% of the provinces, um, 2019 was there, it was a peak year. Um, and if we look at 2017 and 2018, there were 12 provinces in both 17 and 18, representing about 35% of the total, where they peaked. So if you're looking at a peak year to benchmark against, then clearly 2019 uh, wouldn't be an appropriate year. So... Um, I, I, I'm aware of some operators actually combining 2018, 2019. So I think it's very much horses for courses. If you're looking at international visitor growth, it may be a, a year before 2019. Um, but for other reasons, it may well 
the uh, satisfy people's need for a, for, for a baseline benchmark. Yeah, that's interesting, Ross. So I want to quote something that you wrote on LinkedIn quite recently, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and this really, really goes to the heart of, of Indonesia's global potential, really. You said that Indonesia is on the cusp of a demographic dividend that will transform the country's economy, including its tourism industry. Now, that's a really, really interesting point to say, because I think at the moment, Indonesia stands outside the world's top 10 largest economies. I think it's number 13. Uh, but it has its ambition to be the number fourth largest economy, I think, by 2045. So clearly there is huge potential here. Tell us a bit more about that uh, demographic dividend. Well, the interesting thing, uh, Indonesia is in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the box seat, as it were, um, in terms of its demographic, demographic dividend. And we use this term uh, when we refer to a period when a, when, a, when a country's working age population, and, and that may change from country to country, it may be 15 or 64 years of age, is somewhat large compared to uh, dependent, the dependent population, ch children and the elderly. So there's this cohort of working people aged between 15 and 64, and, and, it's, and it's this decade, 2020 to 2030, where this bulge in the population uh, will, will, um, will reach its crescendo, will reach its peak. And, and, and so there are very, very few other countries in the world that have this opportunity, what we call the demographic dividend. Think about China, you think about Korea and, and uh, Taiwan and, uh, and uh, Japan, you know, declining population numbers and smaller working age populations, which means there's going to be um, the working people are going to be supporting people who are retired and, and, uh, and, uh, and can't work. So that, that's the opportunity that Indonesia has, this very significant bulge in its population. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, many of those will be, um, uh, you know, middle income, uh, having greater disposable income, will be seeking uh, hotel accommodation uh, and, and recreational facilities throughout the country. So this is when we try and explain the growth of domestic tourism, we have to look at this uh, this demographic dividend, which is having a significant impact on, on people's expectations and growth patterns. Absolutely. I mean, so what's your research uncovered then about potential areas for growth and product development for the hotel sector that this domestic demographic dividend um, will provide? Well, I guess, I mean, clearly, clearly we need to look at the major population centres, and of course, Java is the, the most populous uh, island of all. And, and future growth of tourism is highly dependent on infrastructure development. And, and um, you know, while there are aspiring uh, demands uh, of the millennial travellers and, and, and younger people, um, the, the infrastructure in the country uh, is, is, is lagging. Now, I, I must give credit to uh, the president, Jokowi, I mean, in terms of expanding what infrastructure we have, but this very serious uh, deficiencies in, in public infrastructure to support tourism. And, um, you know, I, I think in terms of uh, product types, I, I guess the sustainability, uh, Echo Resorts, uh, sustainability, I think, is going to become a juggernaut. It's already um, on a development path, and I think we're going to see a lot more in that uh, in that uh, in that area. You know, sustainable destinations, sustainable hotels, resorts, and and and, and everything associated with uh, with tourism is, is is going to be um, underwritten by you know, greater efforts to uh, incorporate sustainable practices. 
So let's talk next about Indonesia's hotel pipeline, Ross. And I think this might come as a bit of surprise given the potential. You talked about the demographic dividend, the economic upturn that's going on, you know, this, this huge surge of economic activity. But actually, Indonesia's hotel pipeline has been on a downward curve, hasn't it, in recent years? Uh, that contrasts with countries like Vietnam, for example. What are the reasons for this? Well, I guess there's a number of reasons. And I think the first thing is that the, the up until recent times, um, the, the lodging industry in this country was, was uh, somewhat immature in the sense that, uh, you know, there are a lot of new entrants into the lodging space, particularly in the regional areas and, and regional cities, less so in places like Bali and, and, and Jakarta. And so uh, there are a lot of local contractors that may have owned a site in, in, a, in, a, in a secondary city or a secondary tourist location who decided to build a hotel. And so there is an enormous growth in, in the development of hotels and resorts around the country by inexperienced contractors and developers. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't specialists in the hotel space. And, and uh, if you look at the growth, it was astronomical uh, between about 2010 and 2017-18, uh, the number of new hotels. Now, many of them are now in bankruptcy. Many of them are distressed. And, and um, uh, you know, there's been some, some acquisitions in the, in the domestic market. So I, I think the over, overreaching uh, or o- o- overriding um, issue is a maturing market. So people now, we have a much larger database in terms of supply and demand. And so I think going forward, there will be a more sophisticated approach to the development of new hotels and resorts in localities. And I guess the, the, um, the, 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 the debt markets too uh, become a little more sophisticated when hotel developers come along and want to seek a, a bank loan. Banks are now requiring a bit more than just relationship banking to assist in the more rational uh, allocation of capital to hotels and resorts. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's probably the, the overarching thing, that, that supply and demand... Uh, and, and I, I think this is a function of a, an immature market. I'm not suggesting that in any, in any derogatory way, but as the, as the market matures, I think you'll see supply and demand coming more in balance. So I, I think that's probably the, the, uh, the overriding um, issue here. So moving track then to international air arrivals, then you know, what we've seen recently is that these seem to be very heavily concentrated on Jakarta and Bali. Um, do you think the government, the tourism ministry, needs to focus on diversifying those air markets to channel more international flights to airports nationwide? Yeah, I, Hannah, I, I think the government is acutely aware of the need for greater conductivity throughout uh, the archipelago. And, and they have invested significantly in a number of uh, airports uh, in Sumatra, in, in places like uh, Labuan Bajo and, and other, other areas. Uh, but of course, airports are only one part of the, the whole infrastructure story. And I think of Labuan Bajo, we have uh, uh, Komodo International Airport at, at Labuan Bajo. And, and there are recently, uh, Asian, uh, the, the Asian ministers uh, and prime ministers met there. And there was great difficulty in, in accommodating a lot of the aircraft at, uh, at uh, Komodo International Airport. So, um, and, but, but, Komodo International Airport, Lawad Mojo, is, is is presented as a is a is a you know wonderful airport, and it is, but it's still only catering for limited international tourists and domestic tourists. So so I, the difficulty is that that in in underwriting infrastructure development, we need to look at the total package of infrastructure that's required to attract 
international flights and and uh, all the other things that uh, that go with a you know more mature destination. So uh, I think the government is uh, is concerned, but uh, you know, but but Bali and Jakarta. Uh, I mean, I'm aware of people from Europe who are wanting to spend a week or four or five days on a panisi in the uh, Rajanamput area, and they still have to fly into uh, you know Bali and then then loaded into another aircraft for, for flights to other parts of uh, other parts of Indonesia. So I, I think as the as the the country matures and and perhaps when these five destinations uh, come into uh, force then then we'll see a greater distribution of uh, airline capacity. Uh, beautifully set up for the next question Ross. So as you've mentioned before Bali accounts I think it's around 40% of international visitors to Indonesia that's a huge amount 40% for zero. The government is pr- promoting this uh, five super priority destinations that you mentioned there um, to try and you know dis- disperse some of these travellers uh, around the country. What are your impressions of this policy? Do you think it will be successful? Well, I, I have to say, when I first heard about the 10 new Bali's, I cringed. I, I just thought that from a marketing perspective, um, because a lot of people love Bali. There are a lot of people who, who dismiss it. A lot of people who think it's uh, you know overrun and uh, overpo- overpopulated with tourists and, 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 and traffic, all the other issues associated with a, a destination that's grown so, so rapidly. So the, the 10 new Bali's, I think, uh, I can understand the, the reasoning, but the... Um, but the, the way in which it was promoted, uh, you know, I think sort of was a little sour. Now, having, having, I don't think there is anything wrong. And in fact, it's very, very important, I think, uh, in an international um, context. Most countries and tourism authorities uh, are, are out promoting the attractions in their country or region that they perceive to be uh, of international value. But in terms of being internationally competitive, we, we in Indonesia need to look at what's happening in Malaysia, in Thailand, in Vietnam, and saying, where can we compete? Now, at the moment, if you look at the World Tourism Organization, uh, Indonesia competes in terms of cultural heritage. It, it competes in terms of value for money. In other words, we're less expensive than a lot of other destinations. But, but if we're going to really seriously identify four or five regions in the country, we need to stand back and rather than look at the inherent values of those destinations, we need to say, how do they stack up against regions in Vietnam or in Thailand? Because we are in a competitive marketplace. And I think that, uh, um, you know, I'm not suggesting we we, we do anything um, uh, underhand in terms of seeking sort of industrial uh, industrial espionage in terms of what other, others are doing. But I, I think we need to be smart about these destinations. Now, having said that, the, the five destinations are, 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 you know, are located in, in great locations. I, I think the government could have done more in terms of providing seed capital for a prestigious uh a part of those destinations. And, and I think of resort mixed-use developments, which were um, the concept of integrating a whole range of land uses, uh, hotels and marinas and, and villas and maybe theme parks, in some of the best resort mixed-use developments in the world. They're normally led by a prestigious five-star hotel. And, and with some irony, it's probably the least profitable part of the entire development but it gives the image and the status of the entire destination. So, so you know, I think the government could have done more in terms of provided, uh, providing, uh, you know, 
tax exempt uh, funds uh, and, and and to get some of these uh, these regions these uh, destinations away but the, the concept I think is good I guess it's the execution that probably um, needs uh, needs refining yeah I, I think you make a great point there about very competitive environment that's going on in Southeast Asia right now and yeah I mean it's I think every destination is competing with one another and so looking across at Malaysia Penang recently banned short-term rental accommodation in residential buildings. Do you see Bali ever implementing something similar in a bid to control that quality of tourists coming in that they, they keep harping on about? Well, the, the interesting thing in terms of quality, I, I've, I've read dozens and dozens of academic articles on quality tourism. And, and clearly we equate, I guess, those people involved in tourism marketing are looking at uh, expenditure or, or spend per head. And, and I think uh, it's very difficult um, to um, marginalise some groups, backpackers uh, at the border and say, look, we don't think you're a high-spend tourist, so we don't want you. So I, I think there are probably many other things. I mean, the interesting thing in Bali, the average length of stay has... has um, has dropped from about four to two nights, and if you think if you think about the number of inter, additional international visitors that hotel operators and resort operators need to attract to Bali, uh, it, it doubles if they want to get the same number of total room nights. So I think there are many other more sophisticated approaches that, than than um, than limiting uh, you know the, the uh, limited stay uh, facilities, and and uh, you know it's not without its controversy. So. You know, if, 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 if Bali and Indonesia was very serious about long-term high-spend tourists, then the whole concept of senior living, for example, um, very large out of North America and in, 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 uh, in South America, and these are essentially, they're not retirement villages, but they're essentially um, uh, facilities for people aged between 55 and 75 that, that, that may have high disposable income uh, uh, who want to uh, rent a, a villa for five, six, six months, spend forty or fifty thousand dollars? So I think there are many other ways of, of, of attracting uh, high-end, uh, high-end expenditure tourists than um, than, than marginalising, uh, you know, the uh, you know the, the short-stay uh, uh, accommodation opportunities. So I'm not quite sure whether that answers your question, Hunter, but uh, <laughs> just a thought. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's an open-ended question. I mean, I think it's it's something that different countries are looking at in different ways. It really, really depends on on the market itself. You know, Penang has a very, very different market. But what it is going to do there, quite obviously, is it's going to push up hotel rates going forward. Um, if, whether that's the intention, let's see. So, Ross, it's been fascinating to talk to you today. Thanks so much for telling us a little bit more about the hotel and the hospitality scene in Indonesia. Before we go, we've got one question, just to bring it onto a personal level. Uh, we're almost halfway through the year. What's your own travel schedule for the rest of the year? Oh, I've got. I, I'm hoping to get down to Rajadampat, and I'm going to get back to um, to Labuan Bajo, uh, Tanamori. It's a big project just south of Labuan Bajo, and I have to get down to um, Tanjung Lasang, which is on the western western end of uh, of Java. So they're my travels, and 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 of course uh, I get to Bali every other month. And um, also Singapore. So I've got quite a lot of travel scheduled. I only hope I can uh, fit it in and, and, um, and afford it all. <laughs> Are we likely to see you in KL anytime? You know, I, I, I've been invited to, to KL to meet uh, a major development investor group 
um, in relation to these uh, senior living facilities that I just discussed uh, a moment ago. So, so I could well be there, um, could well be there, uh, Gary, in the next three or four months. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ross, for coming on. Um, and that brings us to the end of the show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed with Ross or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back next week to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism with you then. See you soon. Mm-hmm.